Turn in the book of Acts chapter 5. Let's have uh, some scripture reading together. Acts chapter 5. That's where we are. We are looking at verses 17 through the rest of the chapter, verse 42. We are in the book of Acts. We like to go through books of the Bibles, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Sometimes we take a break and we'll do something like Advent season. We've done that last year. Sometimes we don't. We want to keep you thinking and not really sure what we're going to do because we don't want to get into any kind of rut. Um, and sometimes we take a break. At, uh, we're going to take a break this year around Easter season. We're going to do a sermon series on the atonement. I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't done, I've wanted to do this for, for many years. Um, this year, we're, that's where we're headed. We're going to take a break around Easter and do a four-part series on the work of Christ on the cross, which is central. His death, burial, and resurrection from the grave is central to our faith. But for now, we're going to continue through Acts chapter 5. That's my Christmas gift to you, Acts 5. Um, let's just read, if we can, because I'm going to read the scripture later on as well. Let, look at verse 27 with me. We're going to look at 17 to the end, but look at 27, and let's have some scripture reading together as a family. Verse 27 of chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet... Here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis, Thetis, rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up as well in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for it is this plan, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But... If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And verse 40 has always been one of those verses. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Yes, I said rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name in every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Father, this account in 21st century Albany is something I think that we all have to consider, as, as I did this week, and I pray that we will, as a family, And look to see what it meant in that day with your people. And yet, bring it to today. And and help us to see 
what you want us to see. Help us to respond in a way that you want us to respond. Help us to be courageous and wise so that Jesus gets glory, that his message is proclaimed. Lord, so that you will get much glory, Lord, that many people will have their sins forgiven, that you would grant them repentance as is written here. And Father, we ask uh, that you would draw us near and nearer and nearer to Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for what you're going to do in advance. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So the kids are dismissed. We're in chapter 5. We're going to wrap up this chapter. Our series on Acts is called Spirit-Empowered Mission. Luke, the beloved physician, as Paul would call him, is the author of one book, two volumes. The first volume is the, the gospel according to Luke, where he wrote all about what Jesus was doing and, and gave an, an accurate and orderly account of what Jesus did, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And Acts is volume two of an orderly account of what Je- Jesus continues to do. What Jesus is continually doing, he writes Luke and Acts 1, after he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and was speaking about the kingdom of God. So we're calling this series Spirit-Empowered Mission because after Jesus sends to the Father, he sends the promised Holy Spirit to indwell, to empower his people to live on mission. We talk about the mission a lot here. The mission is, is the work of the gospel, bearing witness to the perfect life, to the atoning death, to the resurrection of Jesus, to the world. The first century church, the first followers of Jesus understood that because when the Spirit of God was given, the first thing you see immediately happening in Acts chapter 2 is they began to witness, to proclaim. To, it wasn't good advice. It was a declaration of what had taken place that they had witnessed, they both heard and saw. And in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, church life was pretty good. There wasn't a whole lot of conflict, wasn't a whole lot of turmoil. But in chapter 4, things begin to get tough. Jesus, by the hand of Peter, heals a lame man from birth, and they begin to face persecution and opposition and hostility. Peter and John are arrested by the religious leaders. They're thrown in jail. They spend the night in jail, and the next morning they're brought out of jail, and they're warned and they're threatened by the religious leaders to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. This is in chapter 4. And Peter and John say in chapter 4, verse 9, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, whether I should stop speaking of the name, you be the judge, for we cannot, we are compelled, we will not stop and speaking of what we have seen and what we have heard. Not, it's not legend, it's not folk law. They're declaring their witnesses of the fact of his life, Jesus' life, his burial, his death, him going into the grave, and three days rising from the grave, being seen for 40 days. And then after some threats in chapter 4, we see that the religious leaders release Peter and John. So as we come to our text today, it's no surprise, shouldn't be a huge surprise, that the disciples are being persecuted again because they didn't listen the first time, and that they say it again, we're going to obey God, we're not going to obey you. But there's a big difference in our text here in chapter 5 than chapter 3 and 4. Things become a little bit more scary. They become actually a lot more 
physical. The stakes are much higher. God's word and God's mission, if done for God's glory, is going to be met with opposition. Going to be met from opposition. And many times it is through persecution. Unfortunately, folks, it's many times it's through persecution that the church grows. Tertullian, he's a second century theologian, said, we multiply whenever we are mowed down by you. Talking about to the leaders. And of course, he spoke in Latin. And he ended that sentence with these words. Semen est sanguis Christonerum, which means the blood of Christians is seed. This narrative is all about church growth through persecution. As the apostles challenge authority, obey the Lord with courage and heroism, and, 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 and take a stance. And we're going to see it under three headings. The first one is it's past decision made. They make a decision in the past that propels them into the future. Well, then we'll see number two, which I don't have it up if you're taking notes, the present stance that they're going to take. So the past, present, the past decision made, present stance they take, and then the future. They're looking to the future of, of hope, impending hope of what they have and why they go through such turmoil and trial and yet rejoice. Because at the end of this text, we'll see that they're rejoicing. <laughs> we'll get there. Verse 17. Look with me, verse 17. Just incredible, just incredible passive scripture. Now remember, in chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira, disobedient ones. God brings judgment, takes them out, sends them home. Okay, because they, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They had some land. They sold it, and then they kept the money to themselves, as you know, and, and, and offerings that week skyrocketed. And later on, right after that, we see the, the, that many signs and wonders, verse 12 of chapter 5, were being done multitudes were coming to the Lord. There was someone like, you know what, I don't know about all this. I got respect for those guys, but I'm not buying it, okay? But it got, it got to the place where thousands were coming to faith, the church was growing, and that people were going around Jerusalem and the outsides of Jerusalem and bringing lame and, 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 and sick people, and that Peter and the other apostles were bringing this great healing, and, and all kinds of great things were going on. That's verse 12 through 16. But, verse 17 with all this great stuff going on, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, capital L. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, (laughs) we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, nobody was there. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. You wonder why. Wondering, what, what, what's come of this? Verse 25, and someone came to them and said, look, the men whom you put in prison that aren't there anymore are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the apostles are arrested again. 
The Sadducees had them rested because they were jealous. That word jealous means like extremely hot, fiery indignation. They were zealous for, for their heads is what they wanted. They, they, and they, so they said, you know what, let's put them in the public jail. The public jail is the center of town. It's like one of those places where it's like, you know what, you're not going to get the limelight. We're going to make a spectacle of you. We're going we're gonna to show you and show everybody else that if you want to disobey us, by preaching in a name we told you not to do in chapter 4, we're going to put you in open disgrace, in open shame, in an open jail so that everyone can know we're the big shots around here. That's what jealousy is all about, right? I'm the big shot, not you. Little did they know, an angel of the Lord comes at night and opens up the prison doors and then locks it again. I thought that was pretty cool. You think the angel would come, open up the door, and leave it open. So when they come, the door's open. No, they come, the door's locked. Like, yeah, they're in there. Meanwhile, they're not in there. They've escaped. They're waiting for the sun to come up because nobody goes in the temple until the sun rises. And then the sun rises, what do the apostles do? They go right back into the temple. Unfortunately, not everyone escapes from jail that way. We'll see in the New Testament, the book of Acts, that some Peter will get out of jail, a couple of people, but at the end of Acts, what you will find is Paul locked in jail, right where God wants him. And he's preaching the gospel from the arrest, from his arrest and imprisonment in Rome. Let, let me tell you about somebody. I hope you guys heard of him before. He's an American pastor. His name is from Boise, Idaho. His name is Saeed Abedini. I hope you know his name. He's an Iranian pastor jailed in Iran for over a year. He has a wife and he has two children. He left the Muslim faith and began starting house churches in Iran. He came back to America and then went back to Iran to start um, some orphanages. And now the Iranian government has captured him and put him in a jail and then moved him to a, a more dangerous facility. His health is failing. We need to pray for him. In God's sovereignty, he didn't release him as he does here. Please, 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 please pray. Pray for him. Pray for um, this, this man who just wanted to see Christ exalted, Saeed Abedini. Pray for him. Here in our text, God tells the apostles of the Lord, listen to this one we do. I'm breaking you out, but I want you to go back to the temple, and I want you to preach. I want you to continue preaching out in the open, not underground, not quietly behind closed doors, but out in the temple in front of everybody about the words of life, capital L. It's just another way of saying preach the life because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. So God has given life in Jesus. So that's what he means, go and preach the gospel. Jesus has been called the author of life in chapter 3, verse 15. And that's what they do. And the power brokers of that day, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, come together and they're like, go get those guys. And they come back and they're like, they're not there. It says in, in the Bible right here, it says that they were greatly perplexed. Like, like, like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee contest. Or, or, or Miley Cyrus being asked to speak at the Mormon and sing at the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You're like, what the? That doesn't make sense. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to find them? And then someone says, hey, you know those guys that you threatened several times and told them not to preach? Guess where they are? Take one guess. Uh, in the temple preaching. Yep, you got it right. Folks, that was a blatant disrespect toward the religious leaders and, I might add, civil disobedience. In fact, escaping, and I worked in corrections, escaping from a prison is civil disobedience. 
Now, I know the angel of the Lord came and done it, opened that door, but to the Romans and to the Sanhedrin, his power brokers of Israel, it was an act of disobedience. Not only were they disobedient to, to, the, to the authorities, but they were preaching that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they're attacking their knowledge of Scripture. These are Bible-thumping Bible scholars, and the, and the apostles are going, you got it wrong, he really did rise from the grave. And no, we're not going to listen to you. No, in fact, we're not going to listen to the authorities because we have been told by God, we've been told by the angel that when you get out of here, I want you to go into the temple. So we're going to obey God. That's really what happens. But notice that the apostles were not going back to the temple area with like riots, you know, burning their books. You know, they weren't advocating a political view. What they were doing and how they were motivated was all about the gospel. So here's the principle I think we can draw from that. We must obey God. Speak about Jesus Christ no matter what the consequences might be. You get a sense when you read this passage of their great resolve and their, and their determination and their courage. What is, what is courage? True courage means that we, we, be, we are principled in the face of danger and opposition, doing the right thing in, in the face of danger and opposition. Courage requires people who are motivated with, with a clear goal in mind and, and take risks, personal risks, risks, although they're not sure about the outcome. It's an intentional act. It's, it's something you decide to do, even though you may not know what the outcome is. Sometimes you know what the outcome is going to be, and you know it's not going to be good. You stand on principle, and you take action. It's not so much doing your duty. I mean, there is a sense of doing your duty takes courage. Some of you may be police officers. Some of you may be firemen. Some of you may be soldiers. It's your duty. It takes courage. Some of you may be Walmart greeters on Black Friday. It takes courage to, to stand in front of those doors and open them up because they're going to run you over, literally, with their feet. So it, there are things, but what I'm talking about is not forced duty heroism but things that you choose to do knowing what the outcome could be personal you know uh danger paul harvey los angeles times syndicate writer wrote a story a few years back this is a story he says one summer speaking of heroism one summer morning as ray blankenship was preparing his breakfast he gazed out the window and saw a small girl being swept along in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Blankenship knew that further downstream, the ditch disappeared with a roar underneath a road and then emptied into the main culvert. Ray dashed out the door, raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the foundering child. Then he hurled himself into the deep, turning water. Blankenship surfaced and was able to grab the girl's arm. They tumbled end over end and over end, Within about three feet of the yawning culvert, Ray, this blanking uh, ship, Ray's free hand felt something, possibly a rock, protruding from one blank. He clung desperately, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away. He thought, if I can just hang on until someone comes. Well, the story goes on. He did better than that. By the time fire department rescuers arrived, Blankenship had pulled the girl to safety. Both were treated for shock, and on April 12, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard Silver Life-Saving Medal. He writes, the award, the award is fitting 
For this selfless person was at even greater risk to himself than most people knew. Ray Blankenship can't swim. Man of courage. There's a moment I'm sure he thought, should I do this? He faced the, 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 the dangers. He faced what was before him, and he chose voluntarily to risk his life for that little girl. And you know, here's what I think about courage. I think it takes courage, but I think that courage, obedience, and, and determination, a resolve, must be decided before we face trials, hardships, and persecution. Someone rightly said, long before firefighters run into a burning building, they practice and train for the experience. You see, the apostles knew. The apostles knew that when they said yes to the call of following Jesus, it meant following the one who was flogged, whipped, beaten, and crucified. It's saying, they recognize that saying the same thing that Jesus said, having the same message that Jesus had, talking about Jesus being the Messiah who could forgive sins as Jesus had, that they were going to end up where Jesus ended up. There was that possibility. I'm sure they understood that. It was a decision in the past that gave them the courage to walk out of that jail and go right back and doing the same thing that they were told not to do. Reminds me of Daniel, the prophet and prisoner, who was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, according to Daniel 1.8, it says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He will not disobey God with the portion of the king's food or with the wine in which he drank. He was a young man. He knew, he knew his life was in jeopardy. He was not in the position to make demands. But he showed, I will not do this. I will not defile myself. He could have been imprisoned. He could have been executed. Right now, he's sitting with the king's people. They had it pretty good. But he purposed it in his heart, I'm not going to do this. He could have said, I'm just a teenager. No one's going to know. What, what's, a, what's a small, minor, detailed, small, minor disobedience to God in this? But no. He purposed it in his heart to remain faithful to his God. And I believe... I believe later on in the story when you see Daniel with the doors open, the windows open, and praying, which the king said, anybody does that, you know what's going to happen in the lion's den. That prepared Daniel for that civil disobedience to take courage, to take courage and to follow and to listen and to obey his God. He knew that requirements, that commitment, sacrifice required predetermined resolution. The apostles were faced. If chapter 4, you're going to jail. And they took it. They were released the next day. They, they were faced with, with decisions from the past that has propelled them getting ready for what is about to happen to them. But sometimes, many times, courage takes a decision, a, a purpose, a predetermined resolve in your heart, in my heart, to obey God. You know, did, did, did anybody tell you when, when the gospel was shared with you for the first time, did anybody tell you that rejection and hatred and persecution was part of the gig? They should have. They should have. This American evangelism, everything will be great. No. Many, many tribulations to enter into the kingdom, Acts tells us. So they had a past 
decision that had to be made. Next we see the, the, the present stance, verse 26. Verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. Like, like be real careful, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, Listen, we must obey God rather than you. I know it doesn't say that, but that's really what they're saying, right? We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, now you're getting in trouble now, raised Jesus, whom you killed, so we know you don't believe in a resurrection, and we know you murdered him, so let's put that right out there, by hanging him on a tree, pointing to Deuteronomy, curses everyone who hangs on the tree, but God, verse 31, exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, even the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Here are the apostles. This time it's not just Peter and John like in chapter 4. You have the whole group of people being scolded a second time. Did we not tell you? Why are you keep doing this? And they can't even get themselves to say the name of Jesus. Did you catch that? In his name. They say, in his name. Why are you teaching on this man's guilt upon us? They can't say the name Jesus. You ever been in a place, you could talk about your religion, you could talk about your faith, you could talk about, don't say Jesus whatever you do. It'll be like silence. Don't say his name. Only say it when you're cursing, right? It's the only time everybody laughs. But don't say Jesus is King, Lord, and Savior. But they're surprised. You're, 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 you're preaching that we killed him. Like, like you're, you're trying to say that his blood is upon us. Yeah. Actually, when Herod came out, excuse me, when Pilate came out to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and said, look, I don't want nothing to do with this man. This man is not, been, is not guilty. I washed my hands of him. What'd they say? Let his blood be on us and our children. Well, it is. They're just pointing it out. That's the consequences, right? And Peter's like, look, you killed him. That was an insult to their self-righteousness. We don't hurt, we, we don't sin. No, no, you killed the Holy One of God. You killed his Messiah. And, and before we judge, let, let, let's, let's, let's relate, right? Because there is a sense that we're all guilty, are we not? Amen? Right? Unfortunately, too many of us keep lists of our good deeds in our pockets, but what we should be keeping is nails, a couple of nails in our pockets. I wear a nail cross. Martin Luther used to carry the great reformer nails in his pocket to remind him that, that it was his sin that made him part of the drama, the, 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 the crucifixion. So you killed him. And Peter responds no differently really from chapter 4, maybe a little bit more forceful. He says, listen, we must obey God and not you, not men. It's fairly simple for them. They could, they could either obey the Sanhedrin, they could either follow the religious leader's uh, uh, response or, or how they you know, rebuked them and told them what to do and what not to do. They can obey the Sanhedrin and disobey God. Or they can obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and disobey men. It was that simple. And they've decided very clearly on the facts that were presented before them. Look what it says. C.H. Dodd calls it the kerygma. It's the gospel. It's the presentation of the facts of the gospel. Number one, Jesus was crucified. You killed him. Number two, he rose from the dead. He's not alive. His grave is empty. Number three, he ascended. 
That's so important, family. It's so important that God accepted, ascends, Jesus ascends and God accepts him and the sacrifice by which he died for our sins. He was crucified, he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, and then the fourth thing that's always preached in Acts is we're witnesses. This is not, we did not drop out of the sky. We were not digging in the ground and we found these tablets. This is, this is true. We saw it. We held him. First John tells us, we are witnesses of the very fact that we are preaching to you, that Jesus alone is the key to all of Israel's hopes. He alone forgives sins. He alone grants repentance. And they're witnessing to that. And the irony of it, if you just catch the irony of it, he says, the Holy Spirit was given not to the priest, not to the Sanhedrin, not to the high priest or the bodyguards, right? But to those who obey God. In other words, the reason you don't understand this uh, Bible thumper and religious leaders is because you won't humble yourself before God and listen and turn and repent of your sins. That's why you don't have the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to the ones who turn and trust and obey God. It's not a work salvation, but God empowers those who humble themselves before him. This passage is all about obedience and, and authority. And here's the principle I want to take away from this one. When the government, now listen, when the government or any authoritative body directly forces you to disobey a command or a clear principle of Scripture compelling you and I to sin, we obey God, not man. Okay? Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going out and I'm buying a lot of ammo. Well, that's not what I'm asked telling you to do, Okay? <laughs> Romans, we saw it in 1 Peter, Christians should be law-abiding citizens, okay? Law-abiding citizens, that, that's what it says. In fact, when, Rome, when Paul wrote Romans and Peter wrote Peter, it was really bad government, nothing like today. And yet, they're, they're told to submit. In fact, Peter tells us to submit, even if it causes you to suffer, because you're identifying with Jesus who suffered, and you are blessed by him. The scripture says we are to submit to governing authorities, even though the governing authority isn't following 100% total biblical principles. If that were not the case, it would, in, in, uh, it, would, it would thwart the teaching of Romans and 1 Peter. Yet Peter and Paul tell us to live in subjection to every authority, to submit to every ordinance, to, to honor the king. So let me make this clear, because I think everyone uses this text. Disobedience of civil authority is justified when the authority requires and commands us to disobey God. And I, I know I have to be careful with that. But it has to be a clear command. You know what? I, I think it, some, of, yeah, some of you know where I live. I live out in Voorheesville. And there's some roads back there. There's a wide, wide road that takes me from Voorheesville to a Colony. It's a really wide road. You could see for miles, and it's 30 miles an hour. <laughs> Drives me crazy. Like they could have five lanes and it could be, you know, 75. I can't decide in myself, this is ridiculous. This is a total rebellion of God. I'm doing 65. When they pull me over, I'm going to tell them, you know what? I, I don't want to hear it because this is just ridiculous. Like we don't have that opportunity. So we have to be careful. Here are just a couple of thoughts. First, 
When Christians think that, when, when we believe that we need to be disobedient to the government, make sure it's not your own personal rights, that it's the rights of God, that we have been denied the right to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel and to do the will of God in our own lives. It, it, it's not necessarily, you know, um, you know, our rights, it's God's rights. It's the ability to obey and to follow Jesus. If someone says, do this, and I'm mandating you, and, and I'm forcing you, and it's a clear violation, I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. But what if the government decides to take our tax-exempt status but gives it to the mosques? Uh, some of your blood just got 10 degrees up, right? Who's he really disobeying? I mean, I'll let you figure that out. What does that really violate? We need to be a law-abiding citizen. Let me tell you a story. Many of you know I worked in the Department of Corrections, and one day I was, I was uh, on a unit, and I was overseeing a building that had several different rooms in it. It was a vocational building. It was vocational shops. Those who are incarcerated being taught about vocational, you know, electric and plumbing and stuff of that nature. So anyway, so I'm in charge of the building, and I was looking for someone, so I went into one of the classrooms. The guy was conducting a class. It was a lecture class. There was people all over the place. And I went and talked to the instructor about something I was looking for. I was in charge of the whole building. He was in charge of the electric shop. And when, when, I, when I went to walk out, one of the inmates that was incarcerated there knows I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I love talking about Jesus. Asked me a question. Asked me a question about Jesus. So I turned. I began to tell him about the question he asked me, the information he wanted. The instructor, who's an atheist, and an angry one at that, um, turned to me and said, get the blankety-blank out of my class. Um, I don't want to hear that blankety-blankety stuff in here. So at that point, I, I really could have said, well, guess what? I'm the officer. You're not. I'm running this building. You're not. Shut up. I'm going to do what I got to do. Or I could have just walked out of the classroom and went for another day. I'm not going to ask you what you think I did. I actually walked out of the class, and I submitted to his authority. Some of you may disagree with that. That's okay. But my, my, my thought was this. He's trying to run a class. I'm interrupting his class. Even though there are a lot of things going on, people are all over the place. It wasn't really that was pretty chaotic. But out of respect for him and his classroom, I waited until after the class. The class was over. I was outside. I grabbed the individual, shared with him what I needed to share, and went on my merry way. But I was at that point. I had to make a decision. So it's not as easy, that's my point, it's not as easy as you think. Well, some of you are thinking, ah, oh, you know, if, they, if the government tries to force me to have an abortion, I'm not doing it. Amen. If the government says to me, I, you're not allowed to speak of Jesus, you're going to jail, I'm speaking it. Amen. Those are, those are big picture things. Let, let's bring it down a little bit. Let's get a little personal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to maybe get some of you angry, but that's okay. What about your boyfriend or your girlfriend who wants to disobey God and have sex outside of marriage. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey man? Ooh, that, that one's a little bit, oh, you see, oh, we're not going to stop speaking in the name. Really? Okay. Well, which one are you going to disobey under those conditions? Or how about this situation? You're at work and your boss asks you to lie, blatantly deceive and lie for the betterment of the company. Will you obey God who says do not, you know, bear false witness or man? Or how about a coworker and you decide to go to a Christmas party and you want to leave work a little bit early and they don't want to, they don't want to sign out, punch out, however you do it, or mark yourself out. Nah, don't worry about it. It's, it's Christmas time. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey man? See, it's easy to talk about those big things. I'm not going to let, you know, they're not taking my guns. Okay. 
What about the stuff every day where you have to take courage and stand with God? And that's all of a sudden a little bit differently. Now, I, I hope you discuss this. We're going to be in our community groups. We're going to gather. We're going to talk about civil disobedience and when it's right and when it's wrong. So enjoy that, I hope. Don't, don't you know, don't stab each other or anything. That would be the civil disobedience. But you could talk about that and discuss it in community groups this week. But when the dust settles, what we have here in Scripture is the civil disobedience and the pushback on authority was because of the proclamation of the gospel. It was the unhindered boldness in the witnessing of Jesus. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit wants to do? Everybody wants to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Everybody wants to talk about signs and wonders of the Spirit. The Bible tells me in the book of Acts 11 times, 11 times, that when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke the word of God boldly. Acts 4.13. When they saw Peter and John speaking the word boldly, they said, man, these guys are uneducated men. Acts 4.29, they prayed, Lord, look upon the threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness, with all boldness. Acts 4, when they prayed, the place was filled and was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, you got it, boldness. Acts 28, they proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without, with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts 9, Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles. And they're like, listen, he's in Damascus. He's preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Acts 9, 28. Paul preaching the word boldly in the name of the Lord. Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas speak boldly. It's necessary for us to preach the word to you. Acts 14, 3. So they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Acts 18, 26. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Acts 19.8, Paul entered the synagogue for three months, spoke, guess what? Boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And finally, Acts 26.26, Paul in front of King Agrippa as a, as a prisoner. He says, for the king knows about all these things, all about Jesus. He was there, he witnessed it. And to him, I speak boldly. The apostles had made a past decision to follow Christ, even though they knew what was ahead. And we see that present reality as they take the present stand against the religious leader by disobeying them and obeying God. And now, I'm going to get in trouble one more time and then we're going to move on to the next point. I'm just in that mood today. Some of you, it's all right, you can call me this week if, if you disagree with me. Um, the people of God, I wrote this down, the people of God, I believe, you don't have to. The people of God should spend less time complaining and scheming against the government and more time witnessing to the world about the love, grace, mercy of God that is in Christ Jesus, our God and Savior. Okay? I'm not saying that there's not a place. I'm not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking to myself. Maybe, you know what, I get so caught up, but I think out of my mouth, primarily should not be what's going on in government. What should be is, how can I share Jesus to a lost, perishing, hell-bound world, eternal damnation to my neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, so that they see Jesus, turn to Jesus, love Jesus, have their sins forgiven by Jesus. Uh, that's all I'm saying. You can think about that and, and talk about that as well. And finally, the future impending hope, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. Enraged, wanted to kill them. 
But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held an all, well, honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, listen, men, men of Israel, take care. What you're about to do with these men, be careful. For the, you, know, you know the two men, Thedius, and he, he said he was somebody, had 400 men, they killed him, and everybody just kind of vanished. And you know the other guy, his name is Judas, he's a Galilean, same thing. And you know what, it really didn't amount to anything, but... but Keep away from these guys. Let it alone. For if, if this plan is an undertaking of man, it'll fail, verse 39. But it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You, you, you actually might be found opposing God. So they took his advice. They called him together. They beat him, charged him not to speak, which he didn't tell him to beat him, but he did. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. And in the day, every day, they were, counseled, they were in the temple preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word enraged, as you could probably see from the scripture, is a very strong word. It means they were inflamed. They were, they were incensed by what Peter and John were doing and what Peter and John had done in their disobedience and their, in their rebellion against authority, against uh, questioning their, their understanding of scripture. And then we see this man, Gamaliel, stand up. Let me tell you a little something about him before we move on. Number one, he was a leader in that day. He was the grandson of a man named Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. Who's a famous rabbi, and actually in Jesus' day, there were two major thought schools, theological seminaries of thought. One was Hillel, and one was Shammai. One was more, more conservative, which Gamaliel was, and one was more liberal. Sounds like today, like this liberals and conservatives isn't something new, right? In fact, Jesus confronts both of them when he deals with divorce. That, that's kind of where both schools of thought. Okay, he was a well-known man. He was the grandson of this guy Hillel, who's very, very famous. He was a distinguished rabbi. He was a, a wise person, a teacher. They actually called him Rabban Gamaliel instead of Rabbi, meaning our teacher, the nation, not just the teacher, the rabbi. In fact, the Mishnah, which is a very popular collection of Jewish commentaries of oral law, says this about him: it says since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, is after he died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. So in other words, this guy was highly regarded. But what I want you to also know is Gamaliel was also the teacher, the number one teacher, the man for Paul and Saul, the apostle. When Paul was Saul, who we will see soon, executing and murdering Christians and hating of Christians, he, he, was, he was a student of Gamaliel. And, and he was proud of it, he says in Acts 22. Right? So Paul may have been present during this time. We don't know, but it's very possible as Paul, you know, not, not all the rabbis took in a lot of students. They took a few students that they taught and that followed them around. It, it was a privilege, and Paul was one of those guys. And this guy, Gamaliel, stands up and says, listen, we've done this before. We've gone down this road. We've had people rise up. We've had their leaders killed, and then they gathered around, and after a while, they dispersed. It happened twice. Listen, leave it alone. Jesus was killed. We don't believe that he rose from the dead. We don't care what they say. After a while, let it go. If not, you know what? This could be something of God. You know, so we have to be really, really, really careful because this could be bad. And some people look at this passage of Scripture and think, well, Gamaliel is just being a neutral kind of guy. He kind of just wants to say, you know what? Let's see what happens. Unfortunately for him, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Warren Worsby writes this in his commentary, and I jotted it down. I thought this was good. He says, if Gamaliel, because we're talking about courage, he said, if, if Gamaliel was really afraid of fighting against God, why did he not honestly investigate the evidence, diligently search the scripture, listen to the witnesses, and ask God for wisdom? This was the opportunity of a lifetime. Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, claimed that nobody was born a coward. Truth makes a man of courage, he wrote, and guilt makes that man of courage a coward. What some men call caution, God would call cowardice. The apostles were true ambassadors. Gamaliel was really only a religious politician, end quote. I thought that was a good description of what's happening here. Yeah, there was some prophecy. Yeah, that's true, but he's taking the easy way out. The apostle getting beaten. Verse 39. They take his advice, but not before the beating. Verse 40. And when they called in the apostle, they beat him and charged him not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Every commentary I read, every commentary I read, says that beating was about flogging. You know what flogging is? Some of you saw the passion. I went to see a movie last night with my wife, and I, I don't go. I'm not promoting this movie. 12 Years of Slavery. Oh, it was disturbing. They were flogging people like eating Cheerios for breakfast. These men were, were, were their shirts and their, their autogram was taken off. They were, they were tied to a pole. They had strips of leather, sometimes with rock or, or teeth or steel in the end, and they would beat these men, ripping their skins. Sometimes the organs would show. They, they, you know, we're talking about blood loss. We're talking about serious beatings all because they had preached in the name of Jesus. This is the first beating. It's the first real physical beating we see in the book of Acts. And their hope was, let's beat these men so everyone knows that we're in charge, that next time listen to me, and it will deter rebellion in the future. They were wrong, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, running and hiding and refused to speak in the name of Jesus. No, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And if that's not bad enough, and every day, where were they? In the temple. Not, not like in, in the closet, like in the temple. Where were they when they got arrested? In the temple. Every day. How many times? Every day. It's just mind-boggling. In the te- from house to house. Do not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Like, what were they thinking? Is this some sort of act of of, uh, masochism? Uh, What would cause them to rejoice? How were they able to show such courage and heroism? I'll tell you, it's because of the future hope. Go back to verse 30 and 31. Go back to verse 30 and 31. I don't have it up on the screen. It says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader. Some of you NIV has prince and savior. Now the Greek word for savior is sotir, very common, salvation, savior. But the second word leader or prince is much less uh, uncommon. It's only used four times in the New Testament, two in Acts and two in Hebrews. It's a hard word to translate. It's, it's the word archegos, literally arch ego. Okay, ego, uh, arch ego, arch meaning first, ego to lead. It's talking about a leader. It's talking about someone who who goes first. Okay, many times in in ancient literature, 
in Hellenistic and Greek literature, that word was used of a hero. Someone who is heroic, someone who is courageous, someone who goes first and, 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 and leads people to, 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 you know, at great uh, you know, expense of their own life. In classic uh, mythology, Hercules is known as, a, as a Archegos, a, a heroic adventures and, and this hero. It's been said that the Roman Greek culture was a culture of heroism. So now listen, we're going to close, but I want, you, I want to make this point really clear. So when the early Christians use this name for Jesus, they are connecting a deep longing aspiration of the culture to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ as the Archegos. Okay? Jesus the hero. Now, think about heroes. Was Jesus like other heroes? Yeah, he was a man of principle, wasn't he? He was a man of sacrifice for others, was he not? He faced death with courage, even with drops of blood flowing from his brow. He said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus gave up his life voluntarily. John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. Yes, in all these ways, he's like the heroes of that day and of our day. He looked at the face of danger and voluntarily decided for the good of others, regardless of the consequences. But there's a difference the heroes of, of then and today in our lives are heroes because of the power that they wield. Whether it's bitten by a spider and now you have great you know, uh, a power or whether it's you could turn yourself into a flaming torch. Jesus, though, had all power, glory, and honor. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's eternally with the Father. And what did he do? The very opposite of the heroes of our day. He gave it all up for you. He gave it up for me. His heroism, Paul says, is that he was in the form of God, did not count it equality to God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He, Jesus, humbled himself. He gave up his power. He gave up his vulnerability by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He became vulnerable and mortal and gave up his power and was murdered for you and for me. Listen, the apostles found hope and endured beatings after beatings, even death. They were put to death because they were looking to something or someone else besides themselves. Their hope was in the ultimate hero who gave up his life and power for them. It wasn't about pulling up your bootstraps. It wasn't about handling it. It wasn't about sucking it up. In verse 40, it says they were willing to suffer in the name, for the name. In verse 32, it says we are witnesses. What witness? What things? In the name of Jesus. There's a courage. There's a courage that sort of says, I'm going to just do this and find the strength within myself. And sometimes we need that. But this courage was looking outside themselves. Looking to Jesus, the true hero. The one who didn't absorb power, didn't use his power, but gave up his power. So that we can be saved. And you know. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Is our word. Looking to Jesus. You need courage and strength. Look to Jesus. The founder. That word. Archegos. The hero. The founder. The captain. The author. The hero. And perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
What was the joy? What was the hope? What was set before hero Jesus that he would endure such shame and brokenness and humiliation hanging on a cross? Was it power? No. Was it uh, omnipotence? He already is. Was it glory? No, he had glory with the Father. He had infinite glory. What was it? What was the only thing that he did not have that, that he had to come and endure such brokenness and, and humiliation on the cross? What was set before him outside of him looking towards something for, for, for the joy and the hope that, that pushed him and brought him to the place of crucifixion looking forward, what was it that he did not have? It was us. It was you. It was me. Jesus, the great hero, stepped out of heaven's glory, became obedient to the cross, suffered crucifixion, suffered suffering, beaten, whipped, thorn of crowns for the joy set before him, for the redemption of you and I, endured such beatings. And the apostles knew that. And their hope wasn't just an internal hope, we got to do this, or a courage, internal courage, I have to do this. Their hope, their courage was looking to Jesus, who was his, their hero, ultimate hero, who went before them and endured such cruciating pain so they can be saved. Folks, that will bring courage into your life. Knowing Jesus. This table represents all that Jesus did. The band's going to come up. They're going to lead us through some music. And if you're new here, let me just tell you, the band's going to play. We're going to spend time confessing sins. Maybe there's something in your life right now. You know what? You've been shrinking back. There's something God wants you to say. There's some boldness that God wants you to, to speak in kindness and in love, but he wants you to speak. Maybe it's a time in your life right now that you know what? I, I, Jesus died for me. I, I need to make that proclamation in my own life, in my own heart. He died for me. He rose for me. I'm yielding my life to him. He's the ultimate hero who did not gain power, but gave up power for me. And come, bread represents the body that was broken. The cup represents the blood that was shed. The band's going to play. We're going to confess sins. If you've never been a Christian, now's the time to give your life to Jesus. Confess your sin. Repent of your sins. It means to turn from it and trust Jesus as the author and finisher, the archagos, the, the, the hero, the ultimate hero gave up his life for you. And then after you've confessed and repented of your sins, let's celebrate by taking the Lord's Supper together as a family when you're ready. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not grasp, you did not just stay with the Father by the Father's side, but, but stepped out of heaven's glory and became like one of us without sin so that you can become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Father, that you did not leave your son in the grave rose him from the dead three days later. Father, thank you for that gift. Lord, we pray that your spirit would fill us so that we would be bold. We'd be kind and humble, but confident and bold about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, 
and the facts of all that we pray. Help us unloose our tongue so that we would be witnesses for you. Help us to confess our sins. Help us to repent of our sins. Help us to celebrate our Lord's Supper together as we take of the bread and the cup. But together, Father, we pray that you would empower us for the gospel and for the cause of the gospel, that you would fill us for your glory, our joy. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.